so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to Weekly Tech, a new technology podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Each Monday, we dive into the most pressing and talked about technology stories in order to keep you up to date and prepared for your week ahead. Weekly Tech is brought to you by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. Alongside this podcast each Monday morning, you can receive the Weekly Tech newsletter directly in your inbox that's full of links and the story for the week. You can sign up to receive this briefing each Monday morning at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. And as always, all of the links that we talk about will be available in the show notes. Today on Weekly Tech, we have an interview with Dr. John Lennox about his new book, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. John Lennox is a professor of mathematics at the University of Oxford, a fellow in mathematics and the philosophy of science, and a pastoral advisor to Green Templeton College in Oxford. He's the author of God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? and also the author of the new book, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. We talk a little bit more about artificial intelligence, the origin of the science, as well as some of the ethical and moral implications of the technology. We also dive a little bit more into the relationship between faith and science and realize that a Christian understanding and a Christian worldview is more than adequate for dealing with a lot of the moral and ethical issues surrounding these emerging technologies. And now I want to welcome Dr. Lennox to the podcast. Well, Dr. Lennox, I want to thank you for joining us on this weekly tech interview series. For listeners that might not be familiar with you and your work, can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background and your interest in artificial intelligence and technology? Well, currently I'm a professor emeritus of pure mathematics at the University of Oxford. But for most of my life, I've been interested in the bigger picture. Where does mathematics fit within science? Where does science fit in with our understanding of the big questions about life and existence. And I have worked for years at the interface between science, philosophy, and theology, and particularly involved in the intellectual defense of Christianity. So, of course, artificial intelligence is one of those big issues that people are focusing on these days. And it's obviously important that we, as Christians, orientate ourselves vis-a-vis it. What is it? What can it do? What are its benefits? What are its dangers? Uh, And so on. Your new book, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity, is from Zondervan. It's a monumental work. Um, I was really excited to be able to get my copy and to really dig into it. It's an interest uh, that I have, and I've written a good bit on kind of how humans interact with artificial intelligence and some of the big questions. Um, Tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write this specific work and at this specific time. Well, what inspired me was several things. First of all, I'm interested in the basic question of what a human being is. 
And I noticed, particularly in the work of Yuval Noah Harari, he has written two bestsellers that millions of people are reading. He's an Israeli historian. The first one of them is called Sapiens, and the second one is called Homo Deus. And it's the second of those books. Homo Deus is Latin for the man who is God. And of course, that intrigued me because it seemed to me to be fitting into the transhumanist project, making a superintelligence. And when I read it, I was intrigued to discover his agenda for the 21st century. He said that we're going to solve the problem of physical immortality. And the most important thing would be to enhance human happiness. And in order to do that, we have to re-engineer the human body and the human brain. And of course, that immediately impinges on the big existential questions of what exactly is a human being. And as a Christian, I want to affirm my belief that human beings are very special, made in the image of God. And therefore, it raises questions, what is legitimate to do with human beings in the way of enhancement and so on? I think for a lot of listeners, when they hear about artificial intelligence, they immediately think of like sci-fi movies. They think of these novels and kind of this futuristic, far-off kind of phenomenon. Uh, But in the book, you do a very helpful service to readers kind of distinguishing between uh, concepts of what's called narrow AI and general AI or AGI. Can you help us understand a little bit more about these differences between narrow AI and general AI, uh, noticing that Harari writes a lot about this idea of general intelligence or even a super intelligence and how to interact. But I think a lot of listeners, that seems so far off and they don't really know the distinction. Can you help draw that out a little bit? The distinction is extremely important because certain aspects of AI are proving very useful. Narrow AI, what is that? Well, that's really the way in which computers and and engineering machines can do something extremely competently, one single thing that normally takes human intelligence to do. So hence the word artificial. Let me give you an example of that. X-rays. We set up a huge database and AI has to do with large databases and mining them for information. So let's, for example, take a million pictures of various lung diseases and we get the best experts on lung diseases in the world to label those pictures with the diseases that they represent. And then I get a problem with my lungs and I have an x-ray. And the AI system is geared to comparing my x-ray with the million in the database. And it will come up very rapidly with a diagnosis. And the stage of things at the moment is that diagnosis will often be considerably better than the one that I would get uh, by going to the local hospital. In other words, it's helping enormously with the analysis of x-ray because your x-ray has essentially been looked at the best people in the world. Now, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the development of vaccines and new drugs to deal with this kind of thing That is also a subject of narrow artificial intelligence. So there are very many positive things. And as a scientist myself of a kind of mathematician, I like to encourage younger people, younger Christians to get into this field because there's a great deal of benefit to be harvested, particularly people who are 
gifted at computer science and interested in pursuing that. The downside, of course, we can go into in a moment, but the first thing to realize is that narrow AI is the stuff that actually works. It is not the stuff of the future, so to speak, the dystopic ideas that are a bit scary for people in sci-fi and films. But unfortunately, well, I suppose from one perspective, these are the things that attract most attention. And so it's important to distinguish between efficient doing of something very useful and the quest for superintelligence, which is a GI. As you talked about some of the real benefits of narrow AI and its use today, what are some of the drawbacks or what are some of the dangers, uh, maybe even ethical questions that we should be aware of as we navigate this technology together? Well, let's take the example in which all of us are involved if we own a smartphone, that we are supplying information all the time. We're supplying information about where we are because we are voluntarily wearing a tracker. We're also supplying information on the same basis about the people we meet with. But then we order things online. And the online companies like Amazon are harvesting information. And what many people do not realize is that that information about us, about our buying habits and so on, is actually being sold on and being used without our permission. And so there's a huge commercial enterprise there because information is valuable. So the first thing is they know all about us, and that raises questions about privacy. How much are we prepared to allow? And we're allowing a great deal, ever more, day by day. And secondly, we expose ourselves to commercial pressure. And that's why if we buy something, say, on Amazon, a week or two later, we get a little message saying, people who bought what you bought also buy this. So we're being pressurized to buy something else. And all this kind of information can go together, is already doing so, to create a surveillance society. And in parts of the world, particularly in Xinjiang and China, this is being used actually to socially control a, a whole ethnic group, the Uyghurs. And uh, from what I understand of what's going on there, it's very serious because all of these technologies exist in the West. And somebody made the point is the only difference is they're still not in the hands of one central authority. But we are being under constant surveillance. In my country, the UK, the average time you're on a CCTV every five minutes. So that there are huge ethical questions. And a final one for the discussion is the fact of bias. AI and sifting information can be biased. And for example, uh, it has been found in, in certain bits of information, there's a bias against cultural minorities or women and, and so on. And of course, programs are only as good as our programmers. And eventually, when ethical questions arise, the ethics will be the ethics of the person that programmed it. And people are beginning to be aware of the importance of developing ethical equipment and thinking to deal with this. And that is where I feel the Christian input is extremely important. 
As we talk about some of the ethical implications of artificial intelligence and technology at large, there are a lot of questions that revolve around this concept of transhumanism. You kind of spend an entire chapter really diving into this idea of upgrading humanity. We see this in Harari's work about being able to become this kind of godlike status um, of having the power and the authority and the position to even fundamentally upgrade ourselves. Uh, he writes even about the ability to overcome death or the dream of overcoming death. Can you expand a little bit more about what is transhumanism and what's driving some of these desires to upgrade ourselves? Well, transhumanism, it simply means beyond human or across human. And Harari's idea, and it's the idea of many people, is we've got all this technology. We can produce artificial limbs. We can we use glasses, we use all kinds of attachments. Why don't we go further and start bioengineering and give ourselves enhanced mental capacities and increased life and all this kind of thing? And some of it, of course, is very attractive, but it raises a question of what exactly are you trying to do? And if you're going to modify humans at a biological level by Intervening in the germline, for example, which is the most serious case where you're actually reprogramming all future generations, you're running into danger of, as C.S. Lewis put it in the 1940s in an amazing book that everybody should read, I believe, The Abolition of Man, you are creating not human beings but artifacts because they're being made by other human beings. And we need to stand back and assess this because a lot of it is driven by an atheistic ideology, particularly the one you mentioned. You see, people are striving ever since the book of Genesis to find the secret of eternal life, to live forever. And this is where I believe that the Christian dimension comes into this because instead of seeking to bioengineer uh, us into some kind of silicon life that will endure forever. The Christian gospel comes in and says, look, you're far too late. This kind of life is on offer. It's not on silicon. It's a relationship with the God that created you. So it seems to me that there's a direct conflict between the ideals lying behind transhumanism and the biblical message. I know that you, um, you're you a prolific writer. You've written a number of different works. And one that really stood out to me is your little book from the Good Book Company called Can Science Explain Everything? And you do it as well in 2084, kind of talking about the relationship between religious faith and the sciences, which often in a lot of the modern secular ideas, we see these issues very uh, distinct. They're kind of at odds with one another. Faith and science don't ever really mix. But in a lot of your work, you explain kind of the background behind the sciences and what's driven so much of the scientific es exploration and uh, advancements over the years is actually a faith, like a faith in a God and knowing that it's a knowable universe. Can you talk a little bit more about the relationship between faith and science or uh, reason and faith and help us to understand how these really aren't at odds with one another, but a Christian worldview actually propels the sciences forward? This is a very important question because everywhere I go, including in academia, I find there's immense confusion and misunderstanding as to what faith is. 
And uh, you talk about science and faith. My first response is faith in what? Because faith is not, as people like Richard Dawkins have spread around in the world, believing where there's no evidence. That's blind faith, and that's very dangerous. And we need to come back to the actual meaning of the word. And in English, faith is an ordinary word. It comes from the Latin fides, from which we get fidelity. So it's got ideas of trustworthiness, accuracy, substantive evidence-based commitment. And actually, that's what it means if you look up the Oxford English Dictionary. So faith is essential in every area of life. That's the first thing to grasp. All people are people of faith. People often say to me, you're a man of faith. And that coming from many atheists is not a compliment, it's an insult. Because what they're saying is, you just believe where there's no evidence. No, absolutely not. So let's start with science. Science involves faith, essentially. Einstein once said, I cannot imagine a scientist without without that profound faith. He did not mean faith in God, but what he meant was the faith in the rational intelligibility of the universe. That is, in order to do any science at all, you start by believing that science can be done, that the human mind can access the universe in part. So science, in that sense, is faith-based, as is every other discipline. You can't do history without believing believing history can be done without believing that you can actually access evidence for historical events. And therefore, it's very important to see that when it comes to the Christian faith, that commitment is exactly the same, but goes deeper. What I mean by that is this, that Christianity is evidence-based. That was made very clear throughout the New Testament, but particularly in the Gospel of John, where in chapter 20 and verse 31, John tells you why he's writing his biography of Jesus. He says, Jesus did many other things that are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. In other words, this book uh, consists of evidence upon which faith can be based. What Christ asks of us is not a, a leap in the dark with blind faith. It is a step into the light based on evidence, particularly, of course, the evidence for the resurrection. But it is so important that we get that straight. And in addition, because the Judeo-Christian scriptures taught for millennia the idea that there is a rational God behind this universe, that was the base for the rise of modern science in the 16th and 17th centuries. C.S. Lewis put it brilliantly. He said, men became scientific because they expected law in nature, and they expected law in nature because they believed in a legislator. So that most historians of science support, to some degree, the thesis that modern science is a gift from the biblical legacy. And that's why I'm not ashamed to be both a scientist and a Christian. And it's tragic that this wedge has been pushed in between 
faith in God and faith in the scientific method to such an extent that many people around the world believe both are at war. And I felt that in my book, uh, 2084, I would pick up some of the ideas in my little book, Can Science Explain Everything? But you're right. This is a hugely important topic to get rid of some of this confusion. It reminds me of Ray Kurzweil's book, How to Create a Mind, where he talks a little bit more about uh, the idea of being able to make conscious machines or this idea of general intelligence. And he talks about how we, even as scientists, he doesn't actually, there's an element of faith in the sense of that consciousness can come from the material. It can come from the natural. Um, And there's a lot, there's a, the verdict's kind of still out on if we're able to with varying predictions on when and if we'll be able to create an artificial general intelligence. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about some of the worldview and motivations behind this concept of artificial general intelligence and how we as Christians can think about it? Well, I think you're being generous in saying the verdict's still out. We're nowhere near it. First of all, we don't know what consciousness is to start with. And These are dreams, really, and it's very interesting reading the literature that you will get some people who, like Kurzweil, will jump in and say, of course, this is going to be done within the next 30 years. It's always within the next 30 years, by the way, I've noticed. But serious people just say, look, we're nowhere near there. You're talking about producing consciousness when we don't even know what it is. More than that, we don't actually know what life is. And the problem of the origin of life itself, which I mentioned in my book, is getting harder. It's not getting easier. That is from a naturalistic perspective. And the worldview issue is hugely important. Not only is faith involved in every part of life, but every one of us has a worldview, which means that we have a set of answers. Sometimes they're thought through. Sometimes they're half-formed. And in the background are answers to the big questions of life. And of course, if you believe that the stage we are at at the moment in history, in cosmological history, has been reached by mindless, unguided processes, then you can see how people will say, right, now we've reached the state where we can take into our own hands the development of these processes. But of course, these processes are not understood. We we don't know how it works. And that's why, by the way, I'm revising one of my major books on science and God called uh, God's Undertaker, Science Buried God, because it seems to me that people need to be aware just how difficult these problems are that many popular thinkers imagine that we have already solved or nearly solving. Yeah, and throughout your book, you interact with um, a lot of kind of forward thinkers, popular thinkers, bestsellers like Yul Noah Harari, Ray Kurzweil, and Max Tegmark. Uh, Harari specifically, you spend kind of an extra time throughout the book kind of interacting with his monumental work, Homo Deus. Can you elaborate a little bit more about how he uses that term and how we as Christians think about this concept of Homo Deus? Well, of course, he's speaking from a very strictly um, naturalistic evolutionary perspective. And we've risen from simple molecules to more complex molecules, to animals, to human beings. And what he's saying that 
We've got through the level of the beast. We're now human beings, but now we want to progress beyond that to reach the status of gods. Although he's careful to say he's not thinking of the Christian God, but he's thinking of Greek gods. In other words, superhuman, super intelligent beings who will have vast capacity for knowledge, etc., etc. That is where he is coming from. And of course, if you believe the first thing, it's much easier to believe the second thing. But I don't believe the first thing. And therefore, I want to interact with him and to show in my book what the difficulties are, are, but not only that, not simply to be negative, but to be positive, to say that this has been thought about a long time ago. And in the Christian message, there are very deep answers to these questions, and also the source of the homo deus thinking, because it starts a millennia before Harari. It starts in Genesis, where we're told that human beings rebelled against God. They wouldn't listen to God's word. And the issue of the rebellion was, as put to them by God's enemy, in the day you eat of this forbidden tree, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So this is the origin of the idea, homo deus. And of course, going through history, there have been times, uh, ancient Babylon, ancient Rome, and so on, where the rulers regarded themselves as gods and demanded worship. It's even happened in our modern day. Ceausescu did, uh, and so do others. So that we're thinking about something that is very deeply embedded in the human psyche. We can do better than this. We can improve ourselves. We can build a tower that reaches to heaven. It's ancient Babylon, really, in terms of its philosophy and thinking. I know throughout your book, um, especially with a lot of these popular thinkers, you interact with naturalism and relativism, and you show how they're inadequate for dealing with a lot of the weighty moral and ethical issues, uh, particularly surrounding artificial intelligence. Can you expand on that a little bit about the inadequacies of those two kind of worldviews or philosophies and how a Christian moral tradition is rich enough and is designed to really help us to live um, as God's image bearers uh, in this world as we deal with a lot of the thorny ethical questions that we face in light of modern technology? Well, this is a complex but a very interesting and important question, the foundation of ethics. Because in our experience, all of us, whether we're atheist or Christian or anything else, we discover ourselves to be moral beings. And that's where my first major problem with the atheist worldview comes. Because if you take Dawkins as an example of where atheism can lead, although not all atheists are as extreme as him, but he makes a statement in one of his books that is very revealing. He says, you know, this universe is just what you'd expect it to be. If at bottom there's no good and no evil and no justice. And then he goes on to say, DNA just is, and we dance to its music. In other words, this is sheer determinism, and it is the removal of morality. Now, a hard atheist like uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, he saw this, that if you abolish God, you end up by abolishing morality. Now, when I think about that, it seems to me, to put it bluntly, that's an affront to all of our intelligences. I don't jump on a philosophical bus that is destroying 
the concept of good and evil and morality. And the biblical story, which is very different, which tells us that human beings are moral beings made in the image of God. And the whole Genesis description shows us how human beings behaved morally. This destruction of morality doesn't stop there at the intellectual level. Because in the end, human morality, according to the atheist, comes out of the human mind. But the human mind, according to many of them, is simply the human brain. And the human brain, the short story about it, is that it is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. And I've had very interesting conversations with some leading scientists in this world, and I say to them, look, you tell me that the brain with which you do science and live is the end product of a mindless, unguided process. Now, tell me honestly, if you knew that the computer that you use every day for your scientific work was the end product of a mindless, unguided process, would you trust it? And I've always waited to get an answer, and the answer has always been no. So I say, I see you have a problem. You're trusting your mind to do your science, and yet your argument about its provenance undercuts rationality. Now, here's a powerful reason for accepting the Christian explanation, because it justifies rationality by telling you that your mind ultimately is traceable back to an intelligent God, not to an unintelligent universe. And in the end, I like to say to people, look, you've got to choose between these two worldviews. It's up to you what you choose. But as a scientist myself, and I hope a thinker, I would prefer to choose a worldview that makes sense rather than one that doesn't, and one that actually destroys everything I count to be valuable. I've been nodding along the whole time because I completely agree with you on that, on how the Christian worldview is more than adequate for dealing with a lot of the ethical, uh, the weighty ethical and moral decisions that we face in light of modern technology. Um, This is the last question I want to ask, and this is kind of how we end a lot of these interviews here on Weekly Tech, is what are some books or resources for further exploration if folks are interested in these concepts or maybe things that you've been reading that have been encouraging you as of late? (laughs) My usual reaction to that may surprise you. I, I often say to people, the way to learn in life is to find your own books. What I mean by that is this. If you read a book that you find interesting, then go to the footnotes and see what that person has read. And I would encourage people, if you find my artificial intelligence book interesting, go to the footnotes because I've read dozens of books and have a look in them. And that's the exciting way to do it. Lists of books, I I find, are much less adequate. It's what excites you and what stimulates you. And that can be a real field of delightful serendipity and, and research. So I'm reluctant to recommend lists of books. I say, have a look at footnotes. I think that's really good advice for our listeners. Uh, as we seek to kind of learn more about and engage a lot of these modern technologies and the ethical and moral questions surrounding them. Dr. Lennox, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this interview on Weekly Tech and also recommend to listeners, you can go and buy Dr. Lennox's new book, 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity Now, wherever books are sold. Dr. Lennox, thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me on. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app, and to make sure to share these episodes with friends and family. Alongside our interview series on Weekly Tech, we also have a Monday morning newsletter called Weekly Tech, where you can subscribe and get some of the latest news where we dive into a big issue of the week, as well as the rundown, which is four to five different technology articles that you should be aware of as you prepare for the week ahead. You can subscribe to that podcast and the email newsletter at jasonthacker.com slash podcast. And also, if there's a story or an issue you think we should cover, you can email us at weeklytech at erlc.com. Thank you and have a great week.